welcome. I'm Beth Shanker, the host of The Big Schmear, a podcast about Jewish food. My podcast covers topics as diverse as the latest Jewish food trends to Jewish food history. I'll be talking with chefs, restaurant owners, cookbook authors, farmers, food critics, and lots of people in between. Please visit my website where you can download the podcast and see recipes shared by some of my guests. You can find me at thebigschmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. I'm thrilled to be with Joan Nathan, cookbook author and Jewish food expert extraordinaire. Let me tell you a little about her before we jump into a conversation. Joan Nathan is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and other publications. She's the author of 11 books, including Jewish Cooking in America and The New American Cooking, both of which won both the James Beard Awards and the International Association of Culinary Professionals, IACP Awards. Please check out her newest book, King Solomon's Table. Joan, first of all, I'd like to welcome you here and um, thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on The Big Schmear. You might be wondering if you should be envious of me um, at this interview right now, and um, actually you should be. I'm not in my usual interview venue. I'm in a nice cozy room and um, looking forward to talking to Joan about all kinds of things related to Jewish food, in particular her new cookbook. One of the first questions I usually ask my guests is to define what Jewish food is to them, what it means to them. And in your case, um, because you've been spending a lot of your professional life thinking and doing all kinds of things related to Jewish food, I wonder if you might give me maybe the big picture of Jewish food, like in a Jewish cultural context, and then mm -hmm. if it's different, um, define your sense of what Jewish food is. Well, I've been thinking about Jewish food a lot because of this book, King Solomon's Table. And this is what I've concluded. The Jewish food is really three, has three components. The first is that unlike French cuisine or Italian cuisine that's embedded in the land where people live, Jewish food is all over. But what it's really embedded in is that even if you don't believe in them particularly are the Jewish dietary laws. And to me, that's one of the key elements of Jewish food. The second is the idea of the merchants, of wandering, of going after precious jewels, precious stones, spices. And in wandering, you come up, you're always looking for the new. And it's become part and parcel of Jews that are in the business. They were bakers, they were vintners, they were grain merchants throughout history. Because food is so important to them, the, the laws of food, they've been in the business of food. That's the second. The third component is that Jews have been kicked out of countries so often that they've had to find new places that conform to the dietary laws, but new foods. So for example, I went to El Salvador and I had dinner at someone's home and instead of making potato pancakes, they made yucca pancakes with cilantro cream. Mm. So Jews have always known, learned how to adapt food. So I'm guessing that your own personal definition of Jewish food would fit into that, the same kind of thing, yes? Right, absolutely. Yeah. 
I'm, uh, I wonder if you could share a little bit about how you got into the, how you got on the path of cookbook writing. I have a feeling that wasn't your original plan years ago. I think I'm going to be a cookbook writer. I have a feeling that was not the case no, for you. I, I, when I was in college at the University of Michigan, I thought that I would be a sociologist or an anthropologist. I never thought food. And then I was living in Jerusalem after I graduated from college. And on a lark, I wrote a cookbook with somebody else on the food and people of Jerusalem. And I had learned from the mayor of Jerusalem what food meant. And so uh, sort of the, the meaning of food in the sense that food breaks down barriers between people. Mm-hmm. And this was the mayor of Jerusalem, a, a legendary mayor, Teddy Kollek. And he went to visit Russian Christians or Palestinians. And people were not so welcoming to him till he ate their food. And he commented on it. And all kinds of barriers broke down. And I've always thought that ever since. So interesting. And so you've followed that path. Have you done other things, or has it mostly been cookbook writing since, since your time in Jerusalem? Um, well, so what happened was what started out as a lark became a career, because mm-hmm. when the, after I wrote that book, and it sold about 25,000 copies, I was living in Boston, and I went to the editor of the Boston Globe, Tony, he was the food editor, Tony Spinazzoli, was the editor of the magazine, actually. And I thought I was going to write on, on a sociology column. And he said, no, do it the sociology of, do ethnicity and food. That's what he wanted to write. So he had me write about Jewish people, but Armenians and Albanians and mm-hmm. Scotch, Scots. So th- it was really interesting. So I did that for a few years. And then I moved to Washington, and they wanted me to write a column in the Boston, in the Washington Post. But at that point, I was pregnant, and I didn't think I wanted to do that. I didn't want the pressure of daily, of maybe a weekly journalism. So I have to say that one of the things I found most fascinating about your new book was the history the f- the front part of the book before it's you really ever get before you ever get to the beautiful photographs of all the recipes and which we'll get to in a, in a little bit and so i started getting really getting into um all that you were writing about in terms of this hi- the history of jewish food and what i found fascinating or what i kept thinking was why couldn't i have learned about history through food mm-hmm. i would have been a much better history student right. i think and it would have been more fun so one of the things I found really fascinating was this very early cookbook that was literally set in stone. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it. You saw it, right? Right. And what were there recipes there that you could recognize that you've made before that people would know about now? No, well, first of all, it was 1750 BC. So it's the earliest known cookbook known to mankind. And there were four stone tablets. It was written in cuneiform, on cuneiform tablets in Akkadian. And the recipes were recipes for the gods because there was no monotheism at that point. 
And that really got me interested in what came after. And the recipes, I wasn't so interested in the recipes because I realized they were just pretty much lists mm. of foods. But I was interested in the ingredients because the ingredients could tell us so much about what's going on. However, a friend of mine who was the Iraqi made the, um, the borscht, the beet borscht. And she said it was very much like, but not, not a dairy borscht, yeah. like a meat borscht. Ah. So, but this is for 5,000 people, each recipe. <laughs> right. And the ingredients were things like nigella seeds, which are the seeds on the cover of my book of this an Ethiopian hala. And they're known as Georgian seeds or um, sometimes incorrectly black sesame seeds. But they're real, they're nigella seeds, and we are invent reinventing them. Mm -hmm. You find them in barrecas a lot. There's a wonderful flavor to them. Um, and then I started thinking, well, wait a second. There are all these ingredients that we're reinventing, like um, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, pomegranate paste and date jam and tamarind paste. All these things that people suddenly think are new are very old. Chickpea flour, mm -hmm. which is from the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a long time ago. I was in a store just like two weeks ago and, ha and had somebody ask about, do you have chickpea flour? Right. And I thought, oh well, my Well, it's God. for gluten-free yeah. diets. But that was something that was used seven, in 1700 BC, way before, maybe 2,000 years before that. And then I saw that chickpeas were used. And I realized that First of all, chickpeas is one of the oldest foods known to mankind, and it's also food that was used in an arid place. Therefore, it's going to be the food of the future because, you know, we Absolutely. really need foods like that. So, and then I realized that one, another ingredient was sesame seeds, which meant that sesame had already come from China to the Middle East, and therefore... Um, sesame oil is the first seed oil. So they were making sesame oil, which meant, my guess is, and I'll bet you I'm right, that they had hummus because it was the food of the poor. It was protein. And, um, and I know in the Bible it talks about um, that people dipped bread, sort of like pizza bread, into, it said, vinegar. These were farmhands. And I asked the Israeli writer about this. He said, uh, Meir Shalev, and he said, it must have been hummus because hummus, the word for chickpea and the word for vinegar in biblical Hebrew was very similar. And he said, if you gave a, hand, a, a farmhand um, vinegar to dip your bread in and you wanted them to go back to the field, they wouldn't come because there's no protein. And chickpea was the protein of the ancient world, of the poor. So I think that it's been used forever. God, that's so, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, it is, it is really interesting. W one of the things you, you touched on when we were talking about your definition of Jewish food had to do with Jews traveling all over the world. And so one thing I found fascinating, just shows what I haven't read about, is I, I never pictured Jews as seamen, and you were talking about traveling um, in the waterways around right. Israel. Well, yeah. And so 
Can you talk about what kind of a little bit maybe a little bit more specific about how f- food changes traveled and how that impacted Jewish food and maybe even beyond because they were spice travelers. They didn't just sell spices to the Jews. I'm sure they sold them to the world at large that was Right. So how did that how did that impact food and changes in d- people's diets? Well, when Jews traveled around the world, first of all, let me just tell you, when I first started working on this book, I went to India and I saw a sign on a synagogue that in, in Kochi that said that Jews had been in India since the time of King Solomon looking for peacocks, uh, spices, precious jewels, and stones. And when I saw that, I thought, wow. Then I did a little bit of reading, and I realized that at the time of King Solomon, uh, they divided the year into 12, of course, it's the 12 months. But each month of those 12, of when they were doing that, um, each t- tribe of Israel was responsible for providing King Solomon with precious jewels, with spices for that month. So they went around the then known world. And my guess is these were young men. I mean, who else was going to go and do that? And they would go out, let's say to India, they'd go on these, they're called day boats, D-E-O-G-H. And they went by the winds. Mm -hmm. And they learned seafaring from the Phoenicians. You know, I'm not saying they were great seafarers, but they Uh were. So they would go out and they would go in the waterways in India and there were a lot of little villages that had Jews living there from a long, long, long time ago. And they would come there, they would get their spices and a lot of them would marry women and the others would go back because there were only men that came. There were Mm -hmm. not women that came. And I mean, I don't think so. And actually a rabbi that heard me speak said, now I know why they changed because Judaism was a patrilineal society until, I forget what century, it became a matrilineal society, which meant that you couldn't go out. When it was matrilineal, you wanted, in other words, Jews were women, not men. And these men were going out to other countries. This is what this rabbi said to me. Marrying these women and then making the, their homes Jewish. But the, they, the oh. rabbis changed it for just women to be matrilineal so that you'd marry your wife first, then go off. So they'd uh-huh. go, some of them would stay, they'd, they'd create little synagogues, they would bring more men would stay and more women would, would be married. And so communities were started. And, and the thing is, I know this from the south of France. I did a book on the food of the Jews of France, and there were like 150 Jewish communities at the first and second century um, of the Common Era, and they they were like merchant communities, and they've been destroyed. There's absolutely, you know, think about it. Um, Unless a house is built of stone, which they were in Europe, everything would be gone by now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, here's, so I'm thinking about the topic of immigration, which is certainly a current topic now. And because we know that 
the Jews were able to make use of new, they kind of brought in new spices and new ingredients to their own food and it gave it a, not necessarily a new na new name, but it was a food from the old country into the new country and, and had new spices and things to kind of change it. And you could see where they were from. For, for, the, for immigrants now with all of these issues around, and I, I'm wondering if you see that affecting the future of cuisines worldwide. Do you see that there might be an impact on how people trade and combine foods from different areas? Is there going to be less of that? Is it going to be more? Are we going to be losing something with immigration populations having all kinds of issues about not being able to travel? Well, look, look at what's happening right now with organizations like Whole Foods. They've reproduced all of these ingredients to make them more easier for the general public. Maybe they're not as spicy or whatever. So we've already done it. And there's, you know, going to be a lot of mixture. And, but p people like this because it's so, mu so much of it is much more in line with the way we eat today. We, you know, we mm -hmm. like to have less meat. We like to have different grains and all kinds of things like that. So, you know, I, I think in a way it's a good thing, but I, I really f don't want us to lose all of our, not just Jewish um, right. recipes, but everybody's recipes from all over the world. And, and so in thinking about this, and I, and I recently saw the film In Search of Israeli Cuisine, mm -hmm. what I started to think about was, and you kind of touched on this when you were talking about um, the mayor in Jerusalem, that food can have political sides to it. Mm -hmm. And it can be a good thing, can be a controversial thing. And one of the things I was thinking about was in in that film, there's there's some questions about, so where did hummus come from? Who who really invented this recipe? And but there's other foods like that. And and uh, no, I, nobody. I mean, I think that hummus was something that was of the region. And if they had sesames that they were grinding into oil, and they had chickpeas. But, and you know they, they made something it's like a gruel mm -hmm. and maybe one person invented it but it was quickly um, used by everybody do you ha did you happen to have that sense either while you were working with the mayor or just in your recent travels where food and politics played a role and maybe even a very controversial role as opposed to something kind of mundane well in, in other words like the hummus the hummus fights y right and and um pe people well, not going to eat at restaurants if they were palestinian or israeli yeah, well, you know the, during times when pe things are difficult um people don't there are a lot of restaurants they do not eat in i mean i remember when i lived in israel you w would be a little bit afraid to eat in them but you know, now I think that food is trumping uh, politics and people are eating in Israeli foods or Arab foods, wherever, as long as they're good. Right. And, I, and I think it's also um, belief in the humanity of each person. Because otherwise, people wouldn't be eating in these restaurants. 
Yeah, that's sort a, of a trust. Y- yeah, it's kind of a bridge in a way. Um, and spe- so speaking of Israel and and that film, I wondered if you do you have a sense that there really is an Israeli cuisine? Well, I mean, there's Israeli cuisines. There, it seems to me that it's something that's emerging. And when you think of Israeli food, there are recipes that are happily recipes from Algeria, from Libya, from Morocco that have become known as Israeli foods. It's sort of the lexicon of um, Israeli cooking. And for example, mafrum from um, Libya, or I don't know, like uh, fool from Egypt, things that Jews from those countries have always eaten. And so they've become what Israelis eat. And if you see recipes or frozen like any breads, like Yemenite breads or Tunisian breads that are eaten in Israel, then that's going to be part of what um, Israeli food is. So you see a lot more Tunisian food in Israel because there's so many Tunisians and French Jews that have come and you that becomes part of what the food is. What I can't seem to get my head wrapped around is what's the difference then between Jewish food and Israeli food? Because clearly not everybody in Israel is Jewish mm-hmm. and so is it different? Is Is there really Jewish food that's separate from Israeli cuisine? Uh, well, yeah, because um, in America, Jewish food, three quarters of American Jews are from Eastern Europe. So we think of, of Jewish food here, mostly Eastern European. The home food, a lot of it, or the traditional food, the holiday food in Israel is a lot of it is Eastern European or Sephardic or wherever they come from. But the daily food is is of the region. It's not Ashkenazic or I Sephardic see. food. It's, it's what they eat right there. It gets kind of complicated. Well, yeah, it certainly <laughs> does. One of the things that must have been really fun for you was in working on this cookbook and probably others of, mm-hmm. of the, your cookbooks was that you got to travel to so many places and experience the marketplace and smelling the herbs. I was, you know, like I'm reading about this and I'm trying to, (laughs) in my imagination, smell them. And went to farms and met so many local people who were willing to share recipes, which I think makes the cookbook a really personal cookbook Mm -hmm. because all of your recipes have stories. Um, Of course, the photos are gorgeous. And one thing I mentioned earlier was that I actually made the crispy... Uh, fried zucchini for a Passover Seder oh, as a yeah. side dish. I got in a little over my head m- making pounds of zucchini. Right. And so um, <laughs> asked my husband and my daughter to lend a hand. And so the three of us made this dish, which actually was fabulous. It's really good. It is really good. So um, success, success. <laughs> so that was great. And I'm wondering if with all these cookbooks and all these recipes that you've worked on, if you're willing to share, and perhaps this happened to you, where you had a recipe fail, a failure, like you were making something and it just, it just wouldn't work, 
And maybe you were totally embarrassed, which is maybe not a story you want to share. Or maybe you actually found, you know, you in invented something that you never thought would have come out of this, but because it didn't quite work out the right way, mm -hmm. um, you've made this other magnificent thing. I, I wondered if you have a story you could well, share. There, actually, there was a story a long time ago. The photographer Cornell Kappa, um, Robert Kappa's brother, was doing a fundraiser or something. It was during Passover. And he asked me to do a dessert. And I said, well, it'll have to be a Passover dessert. So I made this carrot tort. And I didn't beat the egg whites enough. And it was just a disaster. <laughs> and it was Passover. And in those days, you know, there weren't that many Passover ingredients. And I was not about to go out and buy something. Right. So we had a pretty bad experience and then a, a few times there have been like chocolate desserts that didn't work so I made them into a trifle because you know god forbid I should throw something out and then <laughs> you know with a little bit of whipped cream and a little bit of rum you're good to go right exactly <laughs> well and I think what that does is it, it lets everybody know that no matter how experienced you are sometimes things just don't work which right to keep trying. Right, I think that's, just keep trying. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a good lesson for me to, mm. to learn. And so you're talking about Passover. So here's, um, here's some, a question and a thought I had about that. I've always personally felt um, a strong connection between the food, the holiday meals, and the stories, and the memories that, that surround that. And that's always been, for me, a really great connection with the Jewish people everywhere, not just my relatives, but the Jewish people as a whole. And I, I remember reading something that Gil Marks wrote. He, he had this observation of um, how ritual holiday foods provide a way for the younger generation to be connected and, and have that um, connection to the past, but also for us, it's the future, and it's a way to sustain our people. So I, I'm wondering if that rings true for you, if, you've, if you have some experience of that, and, and maybe you even have um, a favorite holiday meal story that you would be willing to share. Well, I'll, I'll give you one. I, there are a lot of them, but I'll give you one in particular. I always make a filter fish from scratch for Passover. And there are about six women that come over to my house and we do a filter fish in. We, and we all bring our own pots. We bring the mix that we like for fish and we mold them and we make them some put a little bit of sugar in some don't and and then I always did it when my mother-in-law was there and she would cook her gefilte fish for two and a half hours and we cook it for 20 minutes oh. <laughs> and uh, you know cooked is cooked and then what she would do was as she got older she'd go take a nap so but then she'd come back and when the the, the fish was finished cooking she'd put it on a pretty plate and she'd put the oblong fish patties with a piece of, of carrot and a piece of dill or something mm -hmm. like that on top of each of them and put them in a in a circle on a big platter and on top she'd put the fish head with the eyes oh. and the nostrils she'd do little raisins and and then she'd sigh and I knew why she always sighed, because her mother, that's the way she decorated the fish. Ah. And her son, my husband, 
doesn't like decorating the fish like that because he doesn't like looking at the head of the fish. But then she would sigh and I'd say, why do you sigh? And then she said, because this was a time that she could remember her mother. And her mother was killed in Belzec's concentration camp. So, you know, I always think about that during Passover. Joan, thank you so much for sharing that very personal holiday story. And sadly, we're out of time. Please join me on the next episode of The Big Schmear with Joan Nathan when we talk more about King Solomon's Table. Thanks so much for listening to The Big Schmear today. Special thanks go to two friends of The Big Schmear, Fred Plotkin and Steve Robinson. Our recording engineer is Hudson Fair. Our theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Check out thebigschmear.com to download episodes of the podcast, find recipes shared by my guests, and check out the growing list of recommended Jewish food restaurants. That's thebigschmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.